Welcome to Ready Layer One, a crypto podcast that focuses on the near ecosystem. This is episode 22. In this episode, Joe and I talk to the few and far team. And we're going to try something new today. And uh, Joe, Joe, you're here. We're going to intro the podcast for people. This is an exciting episode. These two guys really gave us a lot of time to really explore not just them building a marketplace, but them trying to build a almost like mini ecosystem on top of the near ecosystem. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. And like they really complement each other. They're both smart. Yeah. I could just sit down and talk crypto with them for hours. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was really what I think is what's exciting about this interview when people listen is that they'll really get a sense of that. These are two uh, experienced professionals that really know the space really well and and have a clear vision of what they're trying to build. Yeah, agree. And uh, one more takeaway that I really liked about this is that when they were talking about the few and far uh, marketplace, they were also talking about like onboarding people and fiat onboarding and offboarding and then also DeFi. So it's sort of this like different experience levels of crypto. Yeah. And I think they talk about it like basically a kindergarten through high school of crypto education. Once they said that, it really started to make sense on what they're trying to achieve long term. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that's what's exciting about this project is that there are a lot of different marketplaces coming out. For us, what was interesting was that it was more than just another place to sell NFTs. And they were really trying to do something more advanced. One thing I think people should know is that uh, we did invest, both Jared and I, but that has no way relation to any questions that we asked. Yeah, not an endorsement at all. (laughs) Like, I don't endorse anything. This space is intense. Do your own research for sure. All right. Well, we we could chat for hours, but let's just try this intro for once. See if people like it on the podcast. That's good. All right, everyone. uh, We hope you enjoy. If someone didn't know what it was, how would you describe Few and Far to them? Just for context, I can give a quick kind of overview of my background. So I've been um, designing web applications for the past decade. Um, I'm on the product design side, a little bit of front end, um, but got into the Web3 space uh, kind of when the summer of DeFi happened in 2020 and was uh, had a play to earn game that I evolved to Web3 product on Algorand. Since then have been uh, advising and building on a number of layer ones, Ethereum, uh, Polygon, more recently Solana. And um, just saw a huge opportunity um, kind of looking at the near ecosystem and seeing kind of the underlying tech being super strong and it being an up and coming layer one and uh, everything they had going from a grants program perspective and saw that, you know, the marketplace from an NFT perspective that was in the ecosystem, you know, uh, you know, Paras is great. Um, I think there's a few others, but there's just a huge opportunity to, to build a, kind of a best-in-class UX, uh, UI on uh, your protocol from a marketplace perspective, and then having a background in DeFi. So what's interesting about Few and Far is we're an NFT marketplace, but we're also integrating DeFi in, into the marketplace. So we have a native platform token, Far, and what that enables us to do is have a community rewards model. So we're actually taking a large percentage of the trading fees that we're earning on the platform and redistributing it to um, stakers of FAR. And they're actually earning near. So it's a community um, kind of participation model and you know, really excited you know, for the product to come out in June. That's kind of high level what FU and FAR is. I'll also add that we're gonna be doing some interesting things from an industry sub-vertical perspective. So we've got smart contracts that are flexible to support things like MP4. So you know, FU and FAR music down the line. Um, this is Chris's area of expertise as well, but GameFi is going to be a really important um, mm. space for us to play in. 
Um, and we've also got some cool things we're integrating as far as like, how do we scale NFTs to the next, you know, 1 billion users, right? So easy onboarding, you know, that's what we love about the near wallet. We're also uh, going to be working on integrating fiat um, as an on off ramp just to make that more seamless. So those are just high level kind of uh, feature set differentiators of few and far. I'm really stoked to see few and far. And I think the DeFi aspect with NFTs, because all right, Joe, we can jump into some questions, but I just have one question that I'm like, I've been like game theory NFTs. And here's my biggest question. And this is for both you and Chris, you might, I've already gone to this point. If you've been in space, mm -hmm. NFT, you launch a, a mint, you mint an NFT, people buy it. Now it's, it kind of separates from the project at that point. Then it turns into its own sort of like speculative class that doesn't affect the project as much, right? So an NFT could be worth zero or a hundred near, and that almost doesn't affect the day-to-day -day project that it's supporting because it's not really supporting. Does that make sense? Is that kind of, can NFT? Yeah, do I mean, that? it's an asset. It's an asset class that really does take on its own life in terms of if there's just speculation in terms of valuation on that asset at a given point. But I think that we're looking at very much the infancy of, of the space. Um, and I think that um, right now it's a lot of, trading JPEGs and, and GIFs, that's, I mean, 90 plus percent of it. Um, and as cool as all that is, I think we're going to be expanding out quite a great deal beyond that. Uh, so when we start talking about NFTs, we're really talking about, so we have a unique token that's generated that has unique data of some sort attached to it. That's, that's the crux of an NFT. And through this whole kind of ecosystem, what we anticipate seeing is a wide array of different uses for NFTs. Um, things like, you know, one of the classic examples is I, I've given for people is doing things like uh, property and vehicle titles. Those are things that could be NFTs. So those could take on their own, own life. So you could do, let's just say you bought a collector car, you could then actually tokenize that and actually have, um, you know, uh, uh, chopped up ownership amongst a few different people with that. Um, likewise, though, if you're talking like in-game assets or something like that, you can have the collectible asset of things. Um, let's, let's use like a Pokemon card or a magic card or something like that as an example to where you've got the collectability of it and you have the people that are just fans of this material that are buying in it. However, those assets could then be used. Um, it could be used in a Pokemon game, could be used in a magic game, or somebody else just because it's an on-chain asset could create some weird amalgamation of things where it's Pokemon versus magic gathering you know where they took those resources and used them however they felt the big differentiator there is finding the common ground in the metadata between these things and that's really that's going to be up to the developers that want to utilize this um, and and that's that's where the extensibility here comes in is that we have a marketplace that rather than just focusing on purely displaying images or very short looping videos we have a wide open architecture so that we can ingest um metadata from any number of sources and also have accommodations for, for doing what we call templates on the front end that looks at the metadata from a given asset and goes, what's our match for this? And then we'll actually render the front end and the usability on our site to match the specification of that NFT. And that's going to take a little bit of doing and working with creators and various platforms that are issuing assets on our platform to define how those things are being displayed in the long term. But we're really looking at kind of having that wide open architecture to be able to support wherever the market goes, because anybody that tells you right now, they know exactly where this market is going is full of copious amounts of shit. 100%. Um, it's, 100%. it's, 
it's going so many odd directions. We can't predict. The only thing that I'm very, very certain on right now is that the next big wave in NFTs is going to be GameFi. That is, I'm fairly certain where things are going. And I think that's really going to start hitting like October, November this year. Dude, you perfect response. I mean, for, for our listeners, like that is exactly like, I'm so glad you guys are thinking that way because I think the, the current state of NFTs is not sustainable in my point of view. And so that next evolution of it, because I think NFTs are wildly powerful and you're right. We're so early in it that, okay, the first step, it's a kind of NFT flipping JPEG, but the, the long game of it is what I'm really into. I think um, what we're seeing now is this is very much like, you know, I, I've likened this to, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be 40 in November. So I'm old and crusty by blockchain standards. Right. Um, and, but that gives me the benefit of having lived through the dot-com boom and been a very young, early engineer in that space, actively working in it as it crumbled. So um, it's funny, we're seeing the analog here where the world, the tech industry is falling apart and the crypto industry has fell, fallen apart here over the last few months. And I'm just kind of, if you've been in this business long enough, you're like, ah, it's old hat. It'll just come back. Wait two right. or three years and we'll be fine. Right. Um, so if we can wait that out, we'll be in good shape. But I think when I'm getting back to the original point here is that this is like the early days of general consumer web stuff and that there's all kinds of wacky and crazy stuff out there. And there's a lot of things that seem like they are kind of the center of the universe right now that will be almost entirely irrelevant in three or four years. And I think this speculative, a lot of the speculative NFT purchases are just going to seem silly. They're going to seem like digital pogs in five years. If anybody here listening is old oh, enough to remember pogs. Dude, I'm 40. <laughs> I had pogs hardcore, man. Yeah. Dude, yeah. that, that sentence you just said there is going to be like the opener. I, I really like what you guys are saying and the approach that you're taking. And the open architecture piece, I think, is was really interesting to me versus other marketplaces. Because it seems like other marketplaces right now, not just on Near, but on other chains, they, they want everyone to conform to their own standards. And, you know, it obviously causes different issues accordingly when, since you guys are going to try to help, you know, whether it's uh, artists or, you know, businesses or whomever else it might be, how are you handling the smart contracts that are going to be deployed from you guys versus somebody who comes onto your platform? So if some, if I want to mint through you guys, what does that smart contract look like? Right now, actually, we, we are working, um, with a partner on the minting stuff. We're focused strictly on the marketplace right now. Um, okay. And we're actually working with a minting partner uh, in the ecosystem. I don't know if we're ready to announce anything around that yet, um, but it's a fairly well-known group within the near ecosystem. So extrapolate that how you will. Okay. Um, and that will get tighter and tighter integration to our system over time. But the edict there being is that um, we're leaving things very open-ended um, so that we can support whatever kind of assets people want to come in. And uh, it, it's if we're not flexible on that, we're not serving our customer base and we're just turning away business. No, I think that's smart. I mean, because, you know, we're starting to see now as the area is starting to mature slightly is that people who were minting on marketplaces are now feeling stuck as they try to grow and they're having to either go back and remint and everything else because they're tied into a contract that doesn't fit them anymore. And so uh, I like the idea of kind of separating that out and focusing on your strengths, which is really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the, though, um, the fiat onboarding? Uh, is, are you taking the same model of like the nifty gateway type of model where prices are both, you know, in USD and in the, the native token? Or is it something where it's more just like, let me fund your wallet 
from here? Uh, Taj. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could, so that's a good question. So on the UX side of things, we're still kind of internally debating how we want to display that information. Um, mm -hmm. So we haven't designed that out quite yet. Um, and Chris can get into this, but we do envision an onboarding experience very much like a nifty gateway. I've looked at their onboarding flows and they're, they're fantastic. And we see it, you know, primarily as a, a, a means of, of, of funding a wallet um, and not needing the friction of, Hey, okay, I need 0.1 near. And now I got to go to, uh, it's not on Coinbase. I got to go to Nexo or whatever right. X exchange and I got to buy it there and I got to send it. So, you know, that, that process is just, not going to work for for people unless you're uh, highly motivated and, and have some time to kill and wait. Um, so we are primarily viewing it from like an onboarding UX perspective, um, and you know we're we're figuring out how we how we approach you know pricing and those sorts of displays, and as well as figuring out how we can enable folks to to ultimately withdraw. You know how how we balance kind of the centralization and the decentralization there, and and how they can kind of take those assets and, and self custody. But um, yeah, Chris, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think when it comes down to, we're, we're going to be servicing two types of users. We're going to be servicing the people that are, let's just call them, you know, crypto native um, to where they've got their wallets and they understand these concepts and they know about bridging and bringing assets back and forth and, and all of that. But that is way, way over the head of the general consumer. And that's part of the reason why Nifty and Dapper have just run away with the market compared to everybody else. And we've kind of done an assessment of looking at everything in the market and going, we could be another niche NFT platform on a small chain, or we could be a platform that serves the general consumer audience by integrating fiat and streamlining all of this onboarding stuff. And having the web-based wallets and being able to tap into those APIs and fund the wallets automatically and things like that, it's just something we can't do in the other ecosystems. Like it's not completely impossible to do, but it's so much, it's so much slicker and easier to do in the near ecosystem. Sure. Um, so we're doing that um, regarding the pricing stuff. Uh, initially, just because we are launching first with crypto, crypto native users, just because frankly, the beginning of any of these things is kind of a beta and we don't want to surface too many things to too many people at once. We want to focus on our core competencies. So we do that. Everything gets priced out in here early on. But I think later on, depending upon the type of user, if you are, let's just say you've come to the system via a crypto native, we may show you the near by default, the near price by default. If you've come in via the usual regular, you know, quote unquote air quotes here, you know, um, regular user system through onboarding, through, you know, a uh, regular kind of sign up process, we may show you the USD value. Um, and I think that there's probably a toggle in there somewhere, but I'd be lying to tell you if, if we had this completely ironed out just because um, the fiat stuff is a high priority for us. It's, 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 it's one of our highest priorities, as a matter of fact. Sure. Um, but there's a lot of legal work and vendor agreements that have to be done beforehand. Um, mm -hmm. And kind of, uh, you know, expanding on that is that, you know, we also have an eye on doing business and, you know, all 50 states. The U.S. is really the biggest bear when it comes to regulation around this stuff. Sure. Um, sure. So there are a limited number of vendors that you can work with that will actually get you access to customers in all 50 states. A lot of these, um, you know, fiat payment solutions that are in the crypto world only only work in like usually the numbers like 38 out of 50 states. Mm -hmm. Um 
because it's so expensive to get uh, money transfer licenses and do all the banking charters and everything in every single state. Uh, New York and California in particular are exceptionally expensive and lengthy processes. So, you know, it's a, there's a lot of maneuvering we have to do to get that set up, but we are working and anticipate on having something like that probably uh, in the fall. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think the onboarding of users is going to be the problem to solve right now. That's like the, the, the win that needs to happen for crypto, I think, to really expand. Well, and there's a, there's a lot of, um, when it comes to actually integrating fiat into a system, there's a lot of little hangups. And, and mind you, I, I've got a bit of a uh, background in payment processing and fraud, fraud abatement systems. When wow. I first moved here to LA, that's what I did for several years. Um, and that, that also ties into doing some e-commerce stuff. So understanding like PCI compliance and all of that, and how that folds in. Um, when we start talking crypto, we start talking about having to get into KYC and AML stuff. Um, and those are dirty words in crypto that are supposed to be permissionless. But in reality, the real world is to have bank accounts and move money around, permissions exist. Um, and we have to play, we are based in the United States and we have to play by the law. Um, we do not want to be in front of a judge explaining ourselves. Um, so getting all of that stuff kind of in order, it's, it's not insignificant because um, a lot of these platforms, again, they'll come back to you and go, oh, we'll take your credit cards in. Yeah, but the little caveat being is, is that no more than $7,500 a user can never spend more than $7,500. And then after that, they have to be KYC no matter what. Is it possible to be like half decentralized and half centralized? And what I mean is like, if the if NIR is decentralized and then a platform is centralized, do you still get any benefits of the decentralization from under it being that like they can't pull anything or does it still kind of centralized? Um, like is mean, it a hundred or zero or is there gray area? Let's, let's be very realistic here. In all of the blockchains, there's really only one that's decentralized, and that's Bitcoin. And yeah. whether you really want to call it, it's not an application blockchain. That is a store of value. Um, there is a higher degree of centralization on all of these blockchains than most people want to admit. Yeah. Um, Ethereum being probably the most decentralized, but at the same time, uh, Lido now controls something like 30% of all the Ethereum through their staking protocols. Yeah. Um, so even that's highly centralized. So this, there's a myth around decentralization. Is it's an it's this libertarian ideal that gets us, you know that gets uh, sold to a lot of people, and it's it's really a false bill of goods. So reality is is that to have bank accounts to become a real business, you need a certain degree of centralization. To loop back to your original question on that is, what's the end, what's the benefit to the end user? Is that they they own their assets is that they can take those assets and do whatever they want with them. So we can disappear and that doesn't matter. You still own those NFTs. So if you bought some in-game asset for some first person shooter or something like that, you bought some you know, body armor or something like that and you spent 30 bucks on it and we go under, it doesn't matter. You still own that. You can go and take that into the new COD or whatever game you're playing that plugs into, that plugs into the on-chain assets. And we have those. Unlike a storefront like PlayStation Now or Nintendo's online storefront or something like that, where you're at their mercy in terms of the IP. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing I'd add is I think the fact that there is a public ledger makes just operating a business a lot more transparent. Like I know the news yesterday with the the, the product manager at OpenSea who was kind of front running and doing some, some shady yeah. insider trading with NFTs, but you know, the community ultimately could, you know, do forensic accounting on the blockchain and um, 
put together a case. So like, I think the transparency um, just makes it a lot more fair to the end user when you're operating a business on the blockchain. So I add that to the self kind of sovereign ownership of assets. Yeah. That first time that I realized that like everything's that open on the blockchain, you just look up a wallet and you're like, oh, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's how much I have in that wallet. There you go. World. It's, it's tricky. But uh, then once I, I dive in now, years later, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I want to pivot a little bit. So coming into this space again, you're being a smaller chain right now, user wise, and having, you know, one pretty much singular marketplace, you know, that's uh, where pretty much everyone who launches now goes onto there. How do you start to bring people over and then once as, as people start to come over, how do you help people know where to go to get what they want to get? Like, you know, so if I, for example, uh, I have a, a decent Skelly's collection, if I have some that are now for sale on, on Paraz, I want to bring it over to you guys. What does that look like? And then how do people then know where to go find the ones that I'm selling? So from an onboarding perspective, um, you know, we've, been speaking with and like most of my day is spent meeting with with the creators behind these collections so we're working on kind of a white club onboarding for creators and their communities but our our vision is for an experience to be where like as chris mentioned like you own these nft assets so you should should be pretty frictionless on how and where you list them obviously if there's smart contract limitations and constraints there that might impact that but we, we have permissionless listing where you can just come to few and far. Um, we've got great search functionality and um, verified and unverified collections and some um, reporting flags and things we're doing on the back end to make sure that, that um, there's no fake collections and, and, and the, the right ones are, are searchable and, and visible. But we have a permissionless um, listing where there's a user profile experience. You, you know, there's a tab where you can easily see your NFTs on the blockchain, which ones are listed, you know, the offers that you have out, what part of a collection it is. So we, we've solved for that from like a user profile experience that we're um, really happy with. So hope that answers your question. It definitely does. I mean, have you looked at, I mean, when you guys are designing this and you're looking at different examples, you know, the one that comes to mind is like the you know, Magic Eden to OpenSea, right? And so when, you know, everyone hyped up like, oh, OpenSea now and all this liquidity is going to flood in because now there's this tie-in. But I, I you can make the case that like it really hasn't seen it, right? Like, the, like still the majority of the volume is all on Magic Eden for the most part in Solana. Mm-hmm. So how, you know, how do you start to say, well, look, you know, we are this alternative platform. We're going to be the better marketplace and start pushing that that volume over to you, you know, over time. Okay, so you're talking multi-chain as well. Um, yeah, so we're working, um, and Chris can dive into this a little bit more, but we're working on a program and working closely with the with the Near Foundation and Aurora as well. We are working on um, some interesting kind of multi-chain uh bridging solutions. So for example, we are now reaching out to Terra NFT collections um, Mm -hmm. and are going to be helping them uh, bridge NFT collections over so they can have continuity and sort of have a fresh start um, within the near ecosystem. We are also working on similar, um, you know, 
plans and approaches for um, Solana. But I think um, NFT bridging is something that Chris has a lot of experience in and there's obviously um, constraints to it. Um, but we're working through that. The other thing that long-term we wanna do is become EVM compatible. I think, you know, when you look out a few years and, and even the, the way that um, this, you know, quote unquote multi-chain world is headed, you really need to be EVM compatible to, to get that big volume and, and really um, tap into the larger market. So we're looking at EVM compatibility, like our long-term vision. And again, we haven't spec this out completely yet, but you know, we envision an experience where you can come in and you can kind of like a MetaMask wallet, you can literally just toggle and see if you want, you know, see NFTs that are minted on Ethereum, see NFTs that are minted on Near, Solana, et cetera. So those are just some, some future state kind of visions and ideations we've been doing. But um, Chris, I don't know if you wanted to speak to the NFT bridging piece. I know that's your area yeah, of yes. expertise. So a couple of things before I dive too deep into the NFT bridge is, is to entice creators to bring their stuff over. We are getting very aggressive with some of the rewards and like for some of these big collections and for people that um, we see a great deal of value in, we are putting together um, we are putting together some resources with the Near Foundation and we are also working with our own native token to entice these creators to come in. And that, that's part of how we're going to be poaching content from other chains. Uh, but then we're looking at a situation right now where we've got Terra that's, a, you know, that's collapsed now twice in a row, right? So uh, it was, uh, Jared, did you have something to add on that one? Because no, I'm just agreeing with you, man. Like, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to, I, I try not to be a maxi, right? Because I like Ethereum, I like Bitcoin a lot, you know? But Nier yeah. seems to be like, I mean, it also hasn't had enough volume, I don't think, to really pressure test it yet. And I, we were literally kinda, having that discussion yesterday. Like, you know, if, if I say all of Solana right now, they were like, you know what, this is a, I don't, I don't want to rip on it. It's just not doing well. And they all flooded to near what would happen to the near chain. I don't know. I, maybe it would scale instantly, no. or would it just suddenly the same thing would happen? I don't know. Uh, I think that's a question that we're going to have to, you know, posit to Ilya and, you know, the guys over at the near core foundation and see what kind of stress testing they've done. And mm. I'll be at consensus next week. So if those guys want to talk, <laughs> I'll be there. So we've got, you know, the Terra people are orphans, right? So, and then we've got the Solana people that are on a house, you know, in a house built on a rickety foundation. Uh, and that network went down yet again last night. You know, it, it's just, it just keeps choking. Um, so, and the other advantage being is that both of those are ecosystems where the contracts are written in the Rust language. So a lot of those developers can come over to Near with uh, relatively little pain uh, if they want to continue their projects on, on the near ecosystem. So with that in mind, we are making very, very serious and aggressive uh, moves towards trying to reach out and acquire projects from those things and bring them into the near, uh, bring them into the fold in, in the near ecosystem. Um, and one of the ways that we're doing that is uh, my team is currently building an NFT bridge. Um, and NFTs, the idea being is non-fungible, right? So we shouldn't be able to reproduce them. But I think in the circumstance that we're facing here, we've got two chains that are dying. Um, and Solana fanboys are probably going to get pissed at me. I'm probably going to get a million tweets that I say that, but it's just everybody's very angry right now. Um, so we want to give people an option. Um, and what we'll be doing is we're just to give you an idea of roughly how this works is we establish contracts on, on the Terra chain and on Solana. 
And when you want to bridge an asset over to Near, what you do is it works very similar to like multichain.org or something like that. The assets come to us, we freeze them on that, on that contract on that chain. And then we mint a corresponding asset on Near. And that's that's how we bring that over. And in the asset that we bring over on Near, we copy all of the original metadata. Um, we can even reference the original IPFS assets if they used IPFS for asset storage. So we'll just bring all of that over and then a marker that actually in our metadata says it was bridged from this chain with this transaction so that people can always reference it and go back and see that yes, that asset is now locked on that chain. Um, and right now what uh, was up in the air and is up for debate is whether or not we wanna be able to go back the other way. There's something to be said for user freedom and promoting that, um, but there's also the you know, there's also the the self-interest aspect of like, no, we want them in near. Um, so sure. it can cut both ways on that. I have a feeling it's probably going to go towards a more open architecture um, to be to remain user friendly and keep the um, you know kind of keep the spirit of of this open and permissionless system alive. Um, and and that's that's one of our big things is that we are directly appealing to these creators on those platforms that are now stranded and they want an exit path. So is that, just to clarify, so that is the project base. So the project owner has to first want to do that and then the users can then choose to come over or they have to come over? Uh, so as it sits right now, if the assets are still controlled by the creator, let's say you, you, it, you created a thousand NFTs and you only sold 300 before the chain started falling apart. Mm -hmm. You as the creator can bring those over. We have that and we will have a catered program to like set that up and help those guys do that. Um, but for the regular end user, if a regular end user wants to do it, we're going to do that as well. It's just, you won't get necessarily um, kind of the fancy branded potential bridging experience that you would with one of those vetted creators, unless, you know, your NFT happens to be from one of those collections. Um, but it will be think multichain.org as far as bridging. Think something okay. like that. Yeah. And that's what that's what we're shooting for. Got it. I mean, I would love to dive a little further into some of the, the token stuff. I know you talked about it being part of the incentives for both, you know, uh, users as well as possibly creators. Can you kind of go in a little more detail, like what's happening with that? Yeah. So high level, um, we have in token we have a token economic structure where um, we've got a very um, healthy, you know, chunk for rewards um, off the look at the white paper to let you know the exact percentage. Um, but what we're doing from a platform perspective, so the mechanics on the token contract work as such. So first, um, every transaction that happens um, with a FAR token across the ecosystem, we've got a third of those transaction. Um, we take like a small 1% tax um, and a third of those go to feed the farm. So we've got a farming protocol, which we can jump into. Um, a third go back kind of to feed just the the eco the platform ecosystem. So things like engineering um, costs, stuff like that. And then a third are actually burned. So FAR is going to be deflationary. So that's just one interesting thing on the, the token contract side of things. But high level, how the platform kind of experience with the token is going to, how it's going to work is that we have, um, we've got staking and farming pools um, on few and far. And so if you are a far staker, you will be receiving as a, as a proportion to how much far you're staking, you'll be getting 
75% of the, the trading fees distributed in near. And then we've also got a farming farming experience that have, you know, very generous rewards for kind of the early um, believers and the early FAR community members. And so there's going to be some really lucrative farming opportunities as well. Yeah, that's kind of a high level. Chris, if you want yeah, to. Yeah, so, um, so to kind of, first thing I'll touch on is the tax. Um, so this is a system that I've worked with some other teams on previously. You know, I've built out a number of different protocols on different chains over the years. And I've seen a few things that work and this tax structure actually seems to work quite nicely. And what that means is basically we have, uh, anytime a transaction is done using the FAR token, um, a 0.1% tax is applied to that. And as, as Taj said, uh, you know, one third of that is just flat out burned. So we have a deflationary asset right there. Um, and then, you know, uh, one, another third of that goes back into basically just uh, funding the company um, and, and adding tokens for future employees and things like that, because we've only allocated a very small percentage of the overall token supply to the founders and the early engineers and people participating. Um, so we are a tiny sliver of it all and we're all under vesting agreements and we have, I can't remember, what is it? It's an 18 month uh, period post launch and that might even get stretched out a bit beyond that. Um, so nice. we, nobody, nobody on the investment side or on the development, uh, you know, or, or on the, you know, the project side can front run the users. We're not going to have a giant, you know, uh, massive tokens to be able to dump. Um, not, not to cut no. you off, Chris, but one interesting thing we're doing there as well. So we're using Rakato. I don't know if you're all familiar, but it's a near, um, ecosystem platform that actually streams tokens in real time. So even so like Chris is talking about a vesting period, it's 18 months now. Um, we might extend it to something like 36 months, but there's not going to be this one kind of cliff moment where there's this huge kind of unlock and liquidity mm. and you can dump, you know create a lot of selling pressure on the market. We're actually going to be streaming them linearly in real time. Um, so that's also going to help kind of prevent those, um, those sort of pump and dump dynamics that often happen when, you know, venture capitalists, you know, after 12 months, they get this huge unlock and liquidity, um, just shitty for, you know, the community and, and end users. Yeah, exactly. Cool. It's, Anyways. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And to that point where, um, you know, I believe in the first, 18 months, I think we're not releasing any more than like 25% of the overall token supply in like the first 18 months. Um, so really, and we're, we're minting a, you know, a half billion tokens. So the numbers are fairly constrained and we're also very conscious in, you know, I've divine, I've divine, you know, devised tokenomics for a number of different projects and consult have consulted on them over the years since basically 2017, 2018. Um, and we're very, very cautious with our emissions in the farm and that we're rewarding people heavily, but at the same time, we're not doing it in such an egregious fashion that we're gonna just cause all kinds of downward pressure on the token value, um, because that's a big risk that a lot of these protocols have is that you know they just emit way too much um, and they've got infinite mints. Um, you know, that's not sustainable. And ultimately it's just, I don't know. I think that's a model that the industry is moving away from at large anyway. Farming mm -hmm. is farming is here to stay, but those crazy, crazy outlandish mints are just dying. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, on the farming front, we've got a few different ways of doing this. And again, this is modeled off the previous work that I've had um, and, you know, some other projects that I've consulted on that actually it's, it's borne out that in this market lull, they've actually taken much less of a significant hit than everybody else because of the way that we designed it. And what that is, is that um, we're doing the usual um, LP tokens. You know, you go and create your LP pair on REF. Uh, we're using Ref Finance as our partner for, um, you know, for creating the LP tokens. And we've got two different pools there for people that are providing LP. We've got a 180-day lockup with super nice rewards. And then we have a seven-day lockup uh, for people that are more risk-averse and don't want to run that potential risk of, of being locked up for six months. Um, the, and the rewards are commensurate um, with the amount of risk involved. Um, so there are very nice rewards to be had on the seven-day pools, um, and there are even better ones to be had on the 180-day pools. It's, it's just that simple. Um, and then the other thing that we do have is, is for people that are super conservative, we've got single-sided staking as well. And that's, you know, that we have there. So if you are one of those people that is super fearful of impermanent loss, and, you know, in, there are justifications to, to say that that's, that is something to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can play that conservative game too, but again, the rewards are tailored um, to offset the risks, you know, or at least in an attempt to offset the risks um, for people. Um, so the other thing that um, I should say is that because of the way that I've designed farming protocols in the past, a lot of people just take the, especially in the EVM world, they take a sushi master chef contract and they just, you know, tweak a couple variables in that and call it a day. Mm-hmm. I looked at that contract and it was, groundbreaking and it made a lot of sense at one point but i think we've reached a point where we need to be able to control these things over time um, and we need to be able to tweak these rewards so our farms are actually set up in such a way so that if we see major swings in the way that the token is being adopted or how we're promoting things or whatever we can actually adjust those rewards at any given point in time so that we can crank those up or crank them down if we need to attract more liquidity or if we feel like there's too much emit, too many tokens being emitted, we can always control those things over time. Um, and that's probably a lot of people are going to take, you know, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but some people are going to take issue with that. But the inflexibility in kind of controlling these mechanisms is what tanks a lot of protocols. So we want to make sure that we're keeping our token valuation solid so that, you know, for our own selfish purposes, obviously, but just for the you know, overall health of the ecosystem. We want to make sure that we have those levers in place to be able to, to regulate things. I think that's really smart because, I, you know, there's a bunch of liquidity pools in my past that have just burned down, right? And like, I think the people who will complain about it are the people who maybe either have never had that happen or don't want the greater good of the ecosystem. And I think that's really cool to hear that you're thinking about it that way. And I'm also interested to see how tokenomics works with the marketplace, right? Like, because it gives your token, a reason to exist. Mm-hmm. Which is, my biggest issue with any tokenomics thing is like, why does your token exist? Like, why does it need to exist? Why could it, could it work without it existing? And so I like that you're folding those together. So the question I have following that is, mm-hmm. if someone's not into tokenomics, they can still just go to the platform and buy NFTs, look at NFTs. They can use it as yeah. just a- Treat it like a regular storefront. You don't need to play in the DeFi pool. You don't have to play those games. But if you want to, if you get in and you actually like this experience and you start believing in the platform, then by all means, come join us. You know, it, it's jump in and make some money on this, and you know, uh, have you know, have a little fun experimenting with this. I, I would encourage people that if you've never even played in an LP position or any farming whatsoever, 
take a few dollars worth of tokens and set this sort of thing up. And I'm not even saying just don't don't necessarily even wait for us to, you know, to launch to do this. We'd love to have you, don't get me wrong, but just somewhere. Go create an LP position and and play in a farm with a few dollars worth of tokens just so you understand the concept. Because understanding that whole concept of providing liquidity is really key to kind of cracking open how you think about all of this stuff. If you don't have a strong grasp on that, a lot of the stuff is just going to fly right over your head. And it's not that hard. It's just a matter of like, give it a shot and you'll get Thanks. it. It's not conceptually, it's not difficult. And with near, you could do it with a couple of dollars, which is like another thing, exactly. you know what I mean? You don't have to worry too much. And so what I'm starting to see, like uh, I like in, when we talk more and more with uh, builders, like, so you, you might get to a point where you onboard people with the fiat, then you bring them into the NFTs and, and, and what that will evolve to. And then even further in the system, they can get into DeFi. So you kind of could really help people from beginning to more advanced. Yeah, this. we're we're DeFi, we're we're crypto grade school. We start you out in kindergarten, and then we send you off to, we send you off to, uh, you know, all the way up K through twelve, and then after that, <laughs> you know, college. I don't know where that is, but it's probably some degen solution where you're over leveraged and lose all your money. You're so. looping. <laughs> you're we're looping NFTs and leveraging per. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Well, I, and I like the thoughtful approach to that. It doesn't seem like it's necessary to the overall business, overall business model either, where, you know, if you can have people who just come in and it's just purely for the NFTs, here is this extra opportunity, you know, because I think the concern that I know in talking to people that they've heard, I've heard not necessarily just about your platform, but other ones as well. As soon as you introduce a token, does it instantly just become a dump right away? I'm just going to convert mine to near and go from there. Or, you know, does that start to become a, an issue where it's, since it's purely maybe rewards based that it, the token just kind of, you know, it's, it's a quick path down to zero. And I think what you guys, it sounds like what you guys are doing and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's really about incentivizing the longer term sustainability of the entire marketplace not just a reward system. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And, and remember, we've got that tax in place. So we've got the, you know, it's deflationary. I mean, it's very, very, you know, slowly deflationary, but does, def, you know, is deflationary asset over time. Mm -hmm. But one third of that tax goes back to the farms. So we want to make sure that we've got funds flowing into the farm so that there's always solid liquidity behind the token. So that if somebody does a, just does decide at some point that, hey, I, I've played here. I want to go do something else. They'll always have the liquidity to make those trades. Um, it's everything about this is designed about around uh, sustainability, and it's the other reason to hold these tokens is, is that very likely in the future we're going to have perks on the site for people that hold you know hold large amounts of these tokens, and there'll be exclusive offers and rewards and things like that for people that have really bought into our vision. Nice. Is there a governance aspect to the token as well? So not at the moment. Um, we've been been ideating around a potential uh, few DAO. Um, we actually haven't dug too deep into this, but I could almost see an interesting. We've got FAR as kind of our uh, our primary kind of financial asset, and then maybe there's a few token that's more of a governance. But currently, FAR doesn't have a governance um, role, but we do see that as being important down the line. So you know, folks being able to, you know, dictate, for example, what collections, uh, you know, use our launch pad, like um, product features, like what games we bring on, um, 
things of that nature. So there's not a governance aspect yet, but we think it will be like critical down the road. Yeah, and if, if I mean, this is just spitballing and we haven't yeah. really even talked about this internally, but if, if we were gonna issue a separate governance token, I think what I'd like to do is for, for you to create that governance token, you actually need to burn FAR tokens. Yeah. Mm. So um, that's that's kind of an avenue that I would like to pursue at some point potentially. I mean, it's a this is all theoretical right now yeah. because and we have DAOs really are so early too. DAOs also you don't want them running everything in an organization. We've seen the I think the best example we have of a DAO failing is with Sushi Swap. Mm. Um, Sushi is a brilliant platform. They are everywhere. They execute like I look at Sushi and I look at beefy finance as like the two gold standards of like every time an evm pops up they're on it within two weeks and their stuff is flawless and works every time and as excellent as sushi is they've lost so much ground in the market because their dow has made it impossible for the stakeholders within the company working for it to get any work done right um, i mean they had a very public um exit for their, their cto who basically said, I can't get anything done. They won't allow him to create a US business entity for him to be able to run payroll and set up AWS accounts and do all these critical things. So I think there's a there needs to be a very well-defined goal for what the governance can and cannot do um, because otherwise it's it just gets frustrating um, and community goals don't always necessarily align with what overall makes good business sense. Sure. Agree. And I think there are some DAOs are going to be important, but I was really happy to hear that you guys are talking about like making the value of your few, of few token matter more so than it just being like a DAO thing. So I, I, I personally, that's just a personal opinion. And I want to take uh, something back that you said that I, I want our listeners to really like appreciate this is that you're not like you said, a percentage of the tokens aren't all heavy founder. Cause that happens a lot where it's like, a huge mm-hmm. percentage just goes to the people who create the project. And this is something that people need to look out for. When you look at tokenomics, look at like yeah. the vesting and how, what the drop off and the cliffs and all that, like that's like- You need erect. to look at emission schedules. You have to look yes. at emission schedules. If I can give any piece of advice to anybody that's listening to this, look at emission schedules on early projects because yes. that is where you can get burned real hard. Yeah. And then you can also see what, how the team is thinking, right? Like the fact that you just said 18 months with potentially more means that you're looking at this as a long-term project that you actually want to succeed as a, maybe something mm-hmm. that's like, Hey guys, we could, we could launch this, get some token, make some money, be out in six to 12 months. It won't really matter. And so that I think from a listener, I really hope people understand like that is really the thing to pay attention to. Yeah. Well. And I think, um, you know, to, one of the things that a lot of people don't like is they don't like VC money in this space, but us having taken some some investment in allows us to make that kind of call where we're not dependent upon being able to sell our own tokens to be able to survive. We have runway to pay our engineers and pay our Amazon bills and do all of these other things that need to happen. So we're not messing with our token economics and screwing the whole thing up. So VC money can absolutely be a negative in some projects, depending upon how it's deployed and how you know, and what the terms are around those. However, I'll tell you right now is our investors are on the same schedule we are. So nobody gets an edge on any other stuff. The, the regular consumer buyer actually has a bigger advantage over this stuff than, than we do. And if, frankly, I, I expect myself and some of the other team members that when this actually goes on the open market, 
we'll probably buy a bunch of our own tokens on speculation just so that we actually have the same ability and the same opportunity that um you know our users do can we just kind of i want to maybe see if we can tie back some of the token stuff along with the you talked about you know trying to better verify projects trying to eliminate you know uh fraud projects and everything else and there's also that curation piece do you foresee uh, a combination where that token becomes part of how you are verifying projects and having you know having project owners having to stake something as part of ownership you know is there some way where we you start to build out your curation and your verification process that involves the token or do you see that as something kind of completely separate that is an extremely interesting question that we haven't really thought much about um but i think you know, we're, we don't, we won't have a launch pad on day one, but, you know, thinking about designing and how we approach that, because a lot of what you're, I mean, the, uh, the, you know, quote unquote, kind of soft rug pulls or rug pulls, whatever you want to call them, like you want to make sure that, that stuff's not happening. So that's an interesting model where we could incentivize projects to kind of commit to a roadmap and, and be there for, for the long haul. Um, haven't thought much about it though. It's a cool, cool idea. Yeah, and I think that there is room for us to do things. We've talked about using our tokens as rewards. And I think that there's that also provides us a little bit of an opportunity for some leverage over creators to go like, look, you do good sales over the long term and we find out that you're not a bad actor and you'll be rewarded handsomely with tokens. If not, then, well, you're SOL and your stuff's going to get blacklisted from our platform. Um, and we'll also probably make that very readily apparent to the internet at large. Um, I am certainly not above being a petty enough dick to, uh, to out a, a bad actor on our platform that if we've blacklisted them, we can just, you know, plaster that right over their creator page if they came back and, and was, were a bad actor. Yeah. Um, that might not be the popular way to do it, but at the same time, I think that we are at a point in this industry where everybody is fed up with a lot of these bad actors giving the rest of us, you know, uh, more trouble than is necessary. And um, I think it's exposing that is important. Uh, and there is a lot of that going on in the NFT space. Um, Absolutely. So that's, yeah. Uh, but that's an interesting concept that, yeah, staking that to make sure that, uh, you're on good behavior. One thing, but kind of down that same avenue on the, on the other side of it is that um, we have talked briefly about being able to utilize our token for creators to actually promote their tokens, promote their uh, projects within our ecosystem so that you can actually use FAR tokens to go and buy like a, a front page listing or something like that. Um, oh, that's interesting. So yeah. additional cool. utility. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's cool. You know, I've heard you guys on a few different spaces now. And I really appreciate you guys really kind of digging deep with us because this is, uh, I think, an important milestone uh, in near to have a, not just another marketplace, but to have a marketplace that is really being thoughtful about the entire ecosystem and not just, hey, how can I sell more things? Exactly. And I think in the next phase, I'm hoping that uh, crypto and sort of like the whole ecosystem starts to get into more of like a how do we value things and how do we build and not just sort of speculate, speculate. I mean, that'll still be there. So, but I think over the next few years, I'm hoping that the whole ecosystem starts to pivot a bit more that way. So seeing mm -hmm. a project that builds over the next 18 months, 36 months, you know, that's what I'm looking for and hoping for. And that's what I want to support. What do you see the next few years being like 
in the near space specifically and then crypto overall? I think in the near space specifically, we'll start with that, is that um, I think we have a tr tremendous opportunity in the near ecosystem right now with the state of Terra and the state of Solana. Um, I think that there is a huge opportunity to get a lot, win a lot of those developers over and a lot of those projects into near because they're going to be able to take a lot of that code and port it over to this, you know, to the near VM and be able to execute things there. The near ecosystem is so young; it doesn't have a lot of things. It doesn't have a lot of strong lending protocols. There's really only one Dex that's really not going. You know, Ref is really the one strong Dex. I know Jumbo exists, but they're still very new and they're still very up and coming. No slight to those guys, it's a work in progress, but they're very new. Everything in this ecosystem is new. So there's a lot of things that need to be fleshed out. And I think that leaves a lot of opportunity for a lot of people. Um, so we'll see what happens. I think it's going to get real interesting, you know, this summer with everybody bombing out of, you know, Terra and potentially out of Solana too. And then of course we have the Aurora side of things too, which gives us EVM compatibility, which obviously that opens a lot of doors as well. Um, you know, I am... I am pretty open in the fact that I believe EVM to be a very, very nice ecosystem. I think that, that it can, near can um, coexist with that quite nicely, um, but there's hard to beat that portability in EVM. So having that Aurora layer puts us in a distinctly, you know, there are, we've got a very nice advantage of being able to play in both spaces with our, um, with our application. So near first, Aurora second, but that's, that's kind of where we're going. As far as blockchain space overall, um, and this is, you know, again, kind of me being on the older end of the ecosystem here. I look at this and I go, blockchain technology and building stuff right now is a little bit like building things on the computers, on computers in the, the late 70s and early 80s. It's very, very, very primitive is interesting and as advanced as a lot of this is, the programming methodologies and the things that we are constrained by are almost endless. Every time you wanna do something, you have to come up with some crazy solution to make it happen because these things are just not that well developed yet. So I think we're in the infancy of this. Near is in an interesting place in that there are some paradigms there with the storage and things like that and the sharding that give this the ability to grow um, beyond what a lot of other chains can. But again, I think that for me to give you a solid prediction of where we're going to be at in five years, I, I, I can't. It's just, it's so greenfield right now that uh, it's, the possibilities are kind of endless. That said, I think there's a couple of hurdles we need to, to, to solve. And one of those is having truly decentralized storage. So, you know, IPFS is nice and all, but IPFS has problems and it's not really blockchain native. It's a thing that we've just kind of adopted into this world. Um, but I think a true distributed storage mechanism that's, that's fast, um, but that also then encompasses the ability to hold the user interfaces on chain as well. Because right now we're in a world where we're dependent upon the blockchain interacting with centralized web servers to display any of these user interfaces. If we can get to that next step where we've got the user interfaces actually coming from on-chain as well, that's gonna be a big, big jump. Um, because right now we're still dependent on AWS for a lot of our infrastructure. Sure, we've got the contracts on-chain, but everything else lives in conventional code bases 
um, you know, on AWS servers on Lambda specifically, if anybody's interested. So that's a great place to end. I mean, there's, you know, I really appreciate what you guys are doing and definitely would like to be able to follow up with you guys, you know, probably six months down the road of, you know, after you guys have launched and really see where you're at and see how maybe your perspectives have changed since then too. Exactly. And we didn't bring up the gaming aspect in this uh, pod because it's a little bit out. And I really want to hopefully down the road, we could talk about that again once it's closer and it's about to launch and all that. Because that, I agree, I think that's going to be a huge use case or potentially could be. Yeah, well, I'll just tease in that we're looking at the little stuff. And there's been a lot of, you know, this is going to sound somewhat, you know, uh, mean, but like a lot of the efforts are out there have been cute. Let's just call it that. They're not really full-fledged games. The thing, I think the biggest thing we have to a full-fledged game is Axie. And Axie is still evolving very rapidly. And they've done some awesome work. Uh, it's been pretty spectacular. They've had their speed bumps, but it's very, very interesting. And I think that they're going to have a tremendous amount of success having specifically their chain just for gaming. I think that's really cool. And I'm very curious to see how that goes. But I'm looking at a future where we're talking to AAA devs, you know, and we're in LA. And we've got the access to those studios because most of those AAA studios are represented here in town. I've got Square Enix four miles up the street from me. I've got Konami right there. I've got, you know, so we've got Sony Santa Monica that does, you know, and we, we've got Naughty Dog. We've got all of these big studios that are here. And it's just trying to cross that divide of convincing these people that like, this is a place and the other thing that's going to come into that is shifting the gaming consumer perspective um, on blockchain and NFT stuff overall. We have to we have to be able to educate these people. This stuff is not the boogeyman they think it is. But that's a whole other podcast. And yep. when we get down that road, we'll yep. gladly come back and talk about it. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the pod. And uh, yeah, thank you. This was great. Oh, of course, that was fun. Definitely do it yeah. again. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy to have come back and done this. I spent. 10 years basically as a professional podcaster and this is kind of nice to get to stretch my legs a little bit again so yeah. <laughs> there you go nice. nice ready layer one is provided for educational informational and entertainment purposes only without any express or implied warranty of any kind including warranties of accuracy completeness or fitness for any particular purpose you should not make any decision, financial investment, trading, or otherwise based on any of the information presented in this podcast without undertaking independent due diligence and consultant and consultation with a professional broker or financial advisory. 